Our text for today is one verse, and that one verse, well, it's a famous verse. I'm sure you love it. At some point in your life, I'm sure it's meant a lot to you. But behind that verse is the whole prologue to John's gospel. And really behind that verse is the whole gospel of John as it's a way in which he's unpacking for us uh, the prologue, what we've been studying the last two Sundays, John 1, 1 through 18. The verse is, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. I was moved when we went to our UK trip to visit the church planters there a month ago that two of the churches we went to visit, uh, these churches in a very secular land, Scotland and England, oftentimes one or 2% even attend an evangelical church, sometimes even less, if we could imagine that. Um, Two of them displayed prominently this one verse. Why did the word become flesh and dwell among us? Why did the Son of God take on a real human nature and become a member of our fallen world of sin and misery? Why did he do that? He came, he was born in a manger to give us life, and not just any life, but abundant life. It's moving to think about that. I read somewhere something like this, our our culture is embroiled in a contest for what is the good life. I think that that's true. It's a contest. What is the good life and how do you obtain it? And I think that's what these UK churches were putting on display in their secular cultures is to say, you may think that we are irrelevant, but what we're talking about here is something you're looking for and something you are struggling to find, abundant life. And so the beautiful prologue to John's gospel, we won't read the whole thing again. We studied it the last two Sundays and it introduces the major themes in the gospel. It's kind of like the overture to an opera. And so themes that came out in the prologue are are, are life and light and darkness and rejection and God's glory and grace and truth and son of God, the rest of the gospel fills that out. So just remember this one phrase, in him was life and that life was the light of men. And think about that song, you know, Mary, did you know? Eric sung it several times. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make us new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you 
We don't know how much at that moment Mary understood. We know she treasured and pondered these things in her heart. What if we imagine a stanza something like this? The son that you gave life to is the source of life itself. So I saw a painting that was entitled, In Him Was Life. It's evidently Mary holding her baby. Christmas is life himself coming down into our death in order to give us abundant life. In him was life. The idea is this overflowing, satisfying, fulfilling, flourishing, abundant life. All of it for that. So how does our world view the good life or human flourishing or or happiness, it's a huge discussion in our day and age. In fact, impetus for all kinds of research. Like, what is it? And so, recently read a book by a Roman Catholic philosopher named Budzizewski. That's his name. And uh, he wrote this book called uh, How and How Not to Be Happy. So he aims to set forth these reasonable arguments for the sufficient conditions of happiness. He, he, he says, to most people, happiness is not just a good, but it's, it's the great good. And for us in the United States, it's even enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. The pursuit of this is an inalienable right of yours, to pursue the great good. So, However, people disagree on what happiness is. The vast majority do want it, whatever it is. So the question, what is it, is intensely relevant. Many, as we know, equate or confuse happiness with pleasure. But it's patently seen that if we make pleasure our goal, then it inevitably slips through our fingers. We know that. Make it your end and it slips through your fingers. Furthermore, most people would readily understand the distinction between asking, are you having a good time? And the question, are you having a good life? And that happiness has to be more like the second question, not so much the momentary feelings, but something more solid. And so Aristotle defined happiness as living well and doing well. And, and so it consists in good character and in good fortune. And it's a helpful general definition as far as it goes. And then our author adds some other information from conversations with people in classical literature. He said happiness entails to thrive, to, to flourish, to be satisfied, fulfilled, to attain your final good. And he says, it can't be something we have for a moment and then lose, but it rather has to be something we retain. And furthermore, it's something that you and I, men, women, boys and girls, we can't help but long for. Like, try as we may, we can't help not want it. It's evidently part of our nature. So then he walks through various options we go to to arrive at the good life. He asks, is it wealth? Is it bodily health and beauty? Is it fame or being noticed? Is it glory or praise? Is it loving ourselves? Is it 
power? Is it pleasure? Is it painlessness? Is it meaning or worthwhile things to do? Is it love or friendship? Is it virtue? Is it, is it just luck? What a great list. A lot of these things we really do like and want. In fact, we'd say they're all good. All of them contribute to happiness even. At the same time, we'd have to look at that list and say they can also impede happiness. They can be in conflict with each other. And certainly all of them are insufficient to be our ultimate good. So then he reels back a little bit and he says, well, could anything in our world be happiness? And the resounding answer after reviewing all of these is no. Even if we have good character and good fortune, Aristotle, we, we still long for something more and we can't help it. There, there's a far something we want, an unnameable something that presses upon us. We're drawn to beauty, yet the greater the beauty, the greater the sense of a still greater beauty beyond, behind, and above it. It's to say whatever I have and however much I have, I inevitably want something more. Don't you feel it? Actually, actually, Christmas is a good time to test the theory. However wonderful the gifts are, we're still looking for the next gift. So a worldly wise man may say good character and good fortune, that's it. But all the while, there's a certain something whispering to us that this is not what we really wanted. And in our world, there's a vast sense of disillusionment. And you can handle the disillusionment in various ways. You can go for a feverish going after more, or you could go for despair of ever attaining happiness, or you can just resign yourself to what life is like. Well, what are we to do? And I love Randy Alcorn's clear statement when he says, we imagine we want a thousand different things, but God is the one we really long for. We often don't realize it, but he is the one we long for. So that's to say, if we can't find ultimate happiness here, and yet if we all desire it, then it must mean it's to be found in God himself. But at that point, we have to face the daunting question, how can we know him? Or to use the metaphor we've been thinking about during this Advent season, how to climb the mountain to God. I mean, when Psalm 24 says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? How do we get there? And so our author says, we are no more likely to lift ourselves up to the beatific vision than to suspend ourselves in the air by pulling up on our trousers. We just can't do it. We know we're unable and unworthy to enter and abide in God's presence. Psalm 24 goes on to say, the person who ascends the hill of the Lord has clean hands and a pure heart. He doesn't lift up his soul to an idol and never swears by what is false. It makes me think of Pilgrim's Progress. Christian has this incredible burden on his back. 
He's going after the wicket gate to enter the gospel way. But before he gets there, Mr. Worldly Wise Man does find him. He observes Christian's burden and says, hey, let me tell you the easiest way to get rid of it. All you gotta do is just head over to the town of morality and talk to a decent man there named Legality. He has a ton of skill helping people like you get rid of their burdens. And Christian asks him, where can I find him? He says to him, do you see that yonder hill? By that hill, you must go. So Christian gets off the way and heads for the hill, but as he climbs it, it just keeps getting steeper and steeper such that he's terrified the peak is about to fall on top of him. And as he climbs, furthermore, the burden on his back gets heavier and heavier till he just can't take another step. And he has to stop in his tracks, worn out and scared to death. And that's when Evangelist finds him again and says in surprise, like, why are you here? Why aren't you in the way? And Bunyan's saying, you and I cannot climb that mountain if we take seriously God's holy character. We just can't do it. But the gospel is God himself must do something and did. And we're the only faith tradition that speaks of this kind of help. Only biblical religion and Christianity speaks of a divine gift by which God himself reaches down the mountain to man. And this and nothing shy of this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Abundant life himself saw us dead in sin and came down the mountain to us. In him was life. In him was life. All life finds its source in the word, the son of God. For an atheistic scientist, everything comes from inanimate matter and energy, and that's what's ultimate. That's all we've got. The astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson has this book called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, which I, I love the book because I love that title. He says these words, he says, in the beginning, echoing creation. In the beginning, what do we find? What do you want to find? What do we find in the beginning? Well, according to Tyson, he says, in the beginning, nearly 14 billion years ago, all space and all energy in the known universe was contained in a volume less than one trillionth the size of a period at the end of a sentence. All the beauty, all the order, all the complexity, all the wonder arose from one trillionth the size of a period at the end of a sentence that existed absolutely. One might try to minimize the faith commitment there by making it small, but it's still saying matter and energy appeared and made it all, made it all. However, you and I believe the word made it all. It sustains it at every moment. We believe that makes much more sense of the complexity, the order, the beauty we experience. We agree with one thing that Sinclair Ferguson says, one of the, one of the great things about being a Christian is may, you may not know much about anything, but you know something about everything 
that the unbeliever doesn't, you know that this is your heavenly father's world, that he created it, that he, that you are secure in it because he's watching over you and he's caring for you. See, we believe the Bible when it says the word is a person, one of the three persons of the one true God, and that this God, astounding as it is, overflows in love for us. So much so that when we sinned against him and became alienated from him and ruined his world, he didn't just annihilate us and start over. He didn't just abandon us to our own devices, but rather he came down to reconcile us to himself. As Tim Keller says that the biblical God is infinitely holy, so our sins can't be shrugged off. He's also infinitely loving. He knows we can never climb up to him, so he has come down to us, the very word that created the universe and that also created Adam is the very word that became part of our ruined universe and that became the new Adam to be head of a new people in a new world. Not just the source of biological life, therefore, he's the source of abundant life. Life came down. And to John, life is a huge theme. He speaks of it more than any other New Testament author. He has it 36 times in his gospel is life. What does he mean, what does it mean to have abundant life? What does the life have to do to give it to us? Well, the word, the son of God, life himself, must become a living being, sharing our fallen nature and living in our fallen world. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And by joining himself to our nature, he becomes the bridge. That bridge to God. As the God-man, the mediator, he supplies all we need to get up the mountain. Really, at the end of the day, we say, he is our true wealth. He's our true beauty and true fame and true glory and true power and true pleasure, true freedom from pain, true meaning, true love, true virtue, true good fortune. It really is him. Abundant life is him. What we so desire is supplied by him, gifts from his hand, but in the most ultimate sense, it all points to him. To have the son is to have all things. Mary, did you know that holding your baby in that manger, you hold abundant life? So before the disillusionment of our world, seeking the good life and just what's here, there is an answer. Adrian Rogers, the Baptist preacher, said it this way, the question before our disillusionment is not, what's the world coming to? Which sometimes we say. Rather, it's guess who's coming to the world? Abundant life himself. In the gospel, the next instance of life is in John 3. Wonderful passage that says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would never perish but have, have, possess eternal life. We see here Jesus talking about descending to our world to enable us to ascend to God and he calls life eternal life. And eternal life there means, yes, a quantity. It's a, it's a life that's never cut short by death. But the core meaning of eternal life in scripture, according to commentators, is the life proper to the age to come. So we won't perish, but we will be given a life proper to the age to come. See, it's the life we're designed for. It's new heavens and new earth. Paul David Tripp says, everyone cries out for eternity. They just don't know it. C.S. Lewis says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only conclusion is I'm made for another world. That's the ache we have, God's presence, the universe healed, ourselves glorified, that's our ultimate good. And so very significantly, throughout John's gospel, we enter into this eternal life, the life proper to the age to come, we enter already, now, when we enter into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ who is life himself when we place our faith in him. We enter the pathway up to the mountain in him for he's the way, the truth, and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me, he says. Then later in his great prayer in John 17, he prays these words and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Like through Jesus, we come to know the far something, the unnameable something, the one we want to know at the top of the mountain. We come to know him. And to know our ultimate good is to experience happiness. It puts all our earthly goods in their proper place. We don't demand, they fully satisfy. We view their possession and even their absence as pointers to God, our true good. But above all, we experience love, God's love for us. You see, the Father's love is the motive for which he sent his Son, for God so loved the world. It's an earth-shattering statement. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lays down his life for his friends. The heart of this love, the center of Jesus' ministry to give us God, to take us up the mountain, secure us all good, is revealed in John the Baptist's statement, the heart of it, what it demands of the word made flesh when John looks at him and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's our sin that spoiled everything we touched. It's our sin that leads to perishing. And so in that stable in Bethlehem, Mary holds the true Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The only sufficient sacrifice for sinners, for being God, he alone is capable of satisfying the full extent of God's judgment upon us. And being man, he's fully qualified to stand in our place and represent us before God as one of us. Isaiah looked 
so long before of, that this had to happen. A man of sorrows had to come and heal us by his wounds. And that's the gospel of Christmas, the core of happiness that God came down as man to redeem us from curse, to remove the sentence of death, to take our sin away, to bestow on us the fullness of life. And so we think of Christ and we think of our relationship with him. By faith in him, we're brought into that harmonious relationship. We know his heart. To to become our redeemer, Jesus' whole life was really, from birth to the cross, was really a constant cross. He was, as Isaiah 53 said, a man of sorrows for us. And back of this is the heart of the Father. And what we learn is the, the cross itself is lodged in the heart of the Father, that he feels it. That it's a motive that he sent the Son for, the love of God. The one behind all things loves us this way. It's not just a matter of energy and matter being behind the universe, it's this love. George MacDonald, the preacher, fantasy writer, influential in C.S. Lewis, said it this way. For when he, Jesus, was crucified, he did that in the wild weather of his outlying provinces, which he had done at home in glory and gladness. It's a crazy sentence, but what it means is, When Jesus went to the cross, he just showed us in the most extravagant way possible for us in our need what God in his inmost being is always like towards us and always like in his inmost character, humility and self-giving sacrifice for others, love. The goal of Jesus' incarnation is his cross, the greatest expression of God's love for us. And he shows us the heart of God for us which then also turns our sense of what the good life is upside down. Because if we enter a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and the heartbeat of his mission is the cross itself and that reflects the very heart of God himself, then we have a reversal of values that laying down our lives for others is how we also find the good life that maybe it's not getting all those things, but it's using and getting for the good of others all those things. For we do enter an upside down kingdom when we enter the kingdom of such a king. And then Jesus concludes all this by speaking of the resurrection of the dead. He looks at Martha and says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And it revolutionizes our whole approach to life that there is resurrection. And the question for us then is, do you believe this? Does Christmas lead you to believe this? That's what the Son of God became a baby in the manger to accomplish. He did that for you. He did that because of his amazing love for you. He did that to confer upon you abundant life that you get glimpses of even now. He provides all the righteousness you'll ever need. He pays all the debt you have. He unites you to himself. He supplies every need of yours. He joins you in his way. He takes you up the mountain to God. Mary, his mother, came to know and believe all this. And do you believe this today? 
And that's the wonderful, complex, beautiful, hopeful answer of scripture. And that's where we find happiness. And that's the gospel of Christmas. And God's people said, amen. Let's stand.